Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning, once again, to the Apostle Paul's letter written to the Galatians, the second chapter where we will be looking together at verses 1 through 10. That's Galatians 2, 1 through 10. You can find that passage located on the bottom of page 1141 in your pew Bibles. Allow me to remind you just briefly of where we are in our look together at this very Christ-exalting, very gospel-centric epistle of sacred scripture. Last week, we talked about Paul's defense against many of these false accusations, accusations that had been leveled against him by these Judaizers, these false apostles, these wicked men who had crept into the church there in Galatia and caused no small amount of dissension with the people of God there. You will remember that Paul had appealed to the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel which Paul himself had received, did not come to him from the mere teaching of men, but in fact had been delivered to him personally on the road to Damascus by none other than Jesus Christ himself. And he points that fact out, beloved, in the face of these scandalous accusations for very good reason. He did not have to appeal to the teaching of men or to the correctness of their teaching because the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ came to him through the divine revelation of Almighty God. Even while he was then in the very process and the extraordinarily busy work the great spiritual work of persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. I don't want to go too far off the trail this morning, but beloved, have you ever thought about the fact that that's when the gospel came to Paul? Think of what this does to the idea of free will and decisional regeneration, the idea of God rewarding with salvation only those who from their own good purpose, their own free will, seek him out and decide to place their belief in him as a result of some spiritual journey. I want to be clear what Paul was doing. He was not seeking peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, even as he is converted, he is in the very act of breathing out violence against even the notion that the Lord Jesus Christ was in fact the long-awaited Messiah, the promised Redeemer of Israel. Paul makes it very clear to the Galatians that he did not simply pass on to them his own version of the gospel that was being taught by the other apostles, but that God himself had grabbed him by the collar and shook him from his sleep and had mercifully opened his eyes to the glorious message of salvation in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. It was his person. It was his work. He did not have to appeal to the approval of men to prove the correctness of his doctrine. Rather, Paul pointed to the very hand of God 
in directing every step he made in the first place. And as has been the case throughout this letter, Paul again beats back these false accusations that had been made about not only him, but really about the freedom that existed for the people of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be clear. Paul is engaged in battle against these workers of iniquity, these destroyers of the peace of Christ, the comfort of Christ, and joy in Christ. These men that would dare to creep into the sheepfold and seek to bring death and misery to the flock that had been entrusted to Paul's care. And now that Paul is clearly made known to the people, the fact that questions about his authority to do what he's doing are not simply leveled against him. They're not simply leveled against Paul, but against God himself who gives all authority in the first place. He does not need to appeal to the authority passed on to him by men who merely confirm the authority that God himself had given him. First and foremost, Paul points the Galatians back to Almighty God who gives all authority. And I want to remind you, these false teachers are much, much more, much worse than just simple men who have somehow erred in their understanding and have then innocently led people astray because of their ignorance. That's not what's going on in Galatia. These men are enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which makes them enemies of Almighty God. Think about the way that Paul is fighting here. Do you think that he thinks that these are just Simple sheep who have slightly, perhaps even barely misunderstood the whole truth. No, as Paul's tone indicates throughout this letter, these men are wolves looking to do what it is that wolves love to do, feasting upon the sheep. They are haters of God, And they seek to only bring about death and destruction and misery in the church of Jesus Christ because they are wolves. So Paul not only shows that they are mistaken in their understanding of the word of God, but he then shows that they are truly something far more sinister than just that. These men are liars. They are haters of God. They've not only erred regarding the truth, they have lied to the people of God as a means of distracting them from the glorious work of God that is found in the pure, undefiled gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the situation in Galatia. They are deceivers, liars, evil men. And Paul now points to the truth of the matter at hand to further discredit their hateful lies and to establish the truth of the word of God and the foundation of the Christian's peace in this fallen world where you and I know what it is to wear these prison houses of flesh. And these men have accused Paul of being in open rebellion against the apostles. They had said that he was in fact preaching his own version of the gospel apart from the law and that the apostles were teaching no such thing themselves. 
They had said that the apostles and Paul were not preaching the same gospel. And that the two of them were opposed to one another. That the apostles were the ones who really had the authority and not the apostle Paul. And now that he had firmly established what authority is, and indeed where it comes from, Paul now points to the facts surrounding his relationship with these apostles and where he stood with them and the fact that they were indeed preaching the same message. And so, beloved, it's with all that in mind, let's look to the word of God now. I'd like you to follow along with me as I read Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear now the word of our Lord. Paul speaking says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission for even an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity to come before the the Word of God this morning. We pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds from the many things that seek our attention in this life and distract us from what truly matters. May we give our full attention to your Word so that hearing your Word through the power of your Holy Spirit, we might be transformed by that Word for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there has been much difference in opinion throughout the history of the church as to which journey to Jerusalem this actually was for Paul, as well as to the actual time frame of this particular journey. Was it 14 years after the first trip that we read about in chapter 1, or was it 14 years from the time of Paul's conversion, which would place this trip then 11 years after the first John Calvin and many of the other reformers agree with the latter position with regards to the timing of it, which would place this trip as being a part of Paul's second journey to Jerusalem. Regardless, Paul points out that he did indeed journey back to Jerusalem, taking with him both Barnabas and Titus, and that the purpose, standing behind their trip, 
was to speak with the apostles who were ministering to the Jewish Christians there. He says in verse 2, And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preached to the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Paul, again, points out very clearly the authority given to him by Almighty God. And he says, it was not the prompting of man that sent me to Jerusalem, but God. It was not the summoning of the apostles that took him back to Jerusalem to clarify exactly what it was or whose gospel it was that he was proclaiming to the Gentiles. But God had called him there. And he had done so through revelation. It was not that the controversy had so erupted in the church that the apostles had to call Paul into their presence for him to give an account for himself. But so that the gospel could even be further established, God sent Paul to the apostles to make certain in front of everyone that indeed they were all coming from the same place. And Paul did not feel the need to go to Jerusalem and gain this large audience in order for him to clear his good name once and for all. Again, that's not why he went. Instead, he says that he went to those who were of reputation, that is, to the apostles, the leaders of the church themselves, and he communicated to them the gospel that he had been preaching. The people in Galatia were confused. And they were, as a result, engaged in restless, nagging doubts because of the wicked misleading of these false teachers that had come into their midst. And rather than go and have an open debate in front of those who might be weak, Paul goes instead to the leaders of the church, the pillars of the people, and he tells them privately what it is that he's teaching. And he does it first. The false teachers had tried to show that Paul and the apostles in Jerusalem were in fact at odds with one another. They had managed to shake the people's confidence in Paul. And the idea that the Gentiles needed to adhere to the law was gaining steam in the church every day. And Paul was being accused of having labored all these years in vain, teaching that it was faith in Jesus Christ alone through the grace of Almighty God alone that justified a man before God. They had said that he had wasted all of these years teaching something that the apostles themselves would certainly say is wrong. Something that is categorically false. And so Paul avoids that debate with these false teachers. He goes immediately to the apostles themselves. And he does it in order to show there is no disagreement between him and and the apostles when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are in wholehearted agreement with the the gospel that Paul is preaching. He goes to the very heart of the disturbance among the people of God by not engaging these accusations and fighting with with the apostles because of these false teachers. 
He ends all speculation as to what each person believed by going to the source themselves. And he explains to them what he is teaching about the gospel and the law of God. He explains to them that he is teaching that it is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, solely because of the grace of Almighty God alone, that will justify a man before God and not the works of the law. And he tells us how it was received in verse 3. He says the result of their hearing what he had to say regarding the gospel was that not even Titus, who was with him, who was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. It gives you a sense of the, the content of this discussion. Paul explains everything he's doing to the apostles, and he says even Titus, who had been with him before these apostles, was not in any way found by any of them to stand in need of circumcision for the completion of his righteousness. Now let's be clear here. Paul is not, as these false teachers accused him, saying that circumcision itself is an evil thing. He's not coming into this group and telling them that they now need to despise the law or even that he despises the law. But he is saying something about the law and he's saying that the law itself, and hear me here, the law itself is powerless to change the heart of man and that it cannot and it will not Produce the righteousness in fallen man that is necessary for man to stand justified before a holy God. Therefore, it was wrong to demand that of the Gentiles as a means of their justification. And there is a reason that Paul does not let it come about that Titus is circumcised. He sees the plotting of these false teachers and he deals them a blow instead of giving them more ammunition to continue to be able to spread their lies and their falsehoods. Look at verse 4. And this occurred because false brethren secretly brought in who came out to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission for even an hour. Why? That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. These false teachers were lying in wait for Paul to come in front of these fellow Jews in this council meeting and circumcise this Gentile so that they could jump out from the shadows and say, now we have. So you preach this gospel of faith to the Gentiles, but when you come in front of the Jewish establishment, you agree that the law is also necessary. That's why you circumcise. We have you right where we want you, Paul. You've been exposed. But remember that Paul is not, Paul is only even at this place because of the revelation of Almighty God. And so he has none of it. He says to the Galatians that not Even an hour will he yield to these liars so that the truth 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ will remain in confusion for these Galatians. You see Paul's point. This isn't just an important fight, it's a critical fight. It's a matter of life and death. And beloved, I want us to see what's at stake in this fight. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a message where God, Almighty God and Him alone, receives all of the glory and man gets none. Paul will not stand for even an hour while men come in and try to take some of that glory of our salvation for themselves. And he exposes their lies even while they are in process of trying to discredit him. And he does it to wage war with the grace. They're doing it to wage war against the grace of Almighty God and the gospel. And Paul's not having it. He will not stand there and allow for these wicked men to gain even an inch of ground in this fight. And he tells these Galatians it's because he wants them to have the truth of the gospel that it would continue with them. That they would know the life-giving liberty that is theirs in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That they would know the joy of the Christian life. That they would know their only comfort in both life and in death. And as a result of knowing that leads to trusting, that they would live out their existences as those who are truly grateful to God for his invading grace that has come into their lives because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Beloved, you have to understand, Paul loves these people. We have to see that. And it's that love for them, it's his love for the gospel that compels him to go to Jerusalem and end these accusations and end this dissension in the church and rightly return all of the glory of our salvation to God and to him alone. And you can still get a sense of where the glory belongs as Paul ends this point in verses six through nine. He says, but for those whom seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. I want you to understand something. There's a lot of confusion about this verse. Paul is not trying to discredit the ministry of the other apostles here. He's not trying to thwart in any any way their God-given authority to go out and to preach the gospel. But because it is the glory of God that is at stake, Paul is saying that these men whom we all accept as certainly being something, these eyewitnesses to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, Though God shows no personal favoritism, these men did not add a word to the gospel, the gospel that Paul is preaching. In fact, he says, on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised had been committed to Peter, 
For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived what? The grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we remember the poor. The very thing, Paul says, I was eager to do. Paul tells the Galatians that these apostles who only have a position because Almighty God placed them in that position did not disagree with a thing that Paul was saying. In fact, they read the providence of God into Paul's situation. They acknowledged him as God's chosen apostle, God's vessel to the Gentiles, even as they were God's vessel to the Jewish believers. And they were all of one mind regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the apostles extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. They were of one mind. They were unified when it came to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The notion that Paul and the so-called real apostles were at some kind of Variance with one another was nothing more than a bold-faced lie. And it was told only to undermine Paul as yet another vain attempt to silence the message of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone because of the grace of Almighty God alone. These wicked men wanted the glory to belong at least in part to man. And that's why they clung to their own version of the law. The law light. (laughs) You understand that this version of the law they were clinging to was a far cry from the holy law of God. The truth is these men wanted nothing other than for man to get the glory because they were following a different gospel from a different God. And it was, in fact, no gospel at all. And we have to recognize that. They were seeking to please their father, the devil, not almighty God. And maybe you hear me say that this morning and you think that sounds pretty harsh. I mean, you're listening to all of this and you're thinking that that maybe I've gone a little bit further than you're comfortable with this morning. I mean, Come on, Steve. You do know these men were part of the church. Right? They didn't just show up out of nowhere. They were part of the church. They just happened to disagree with Paul. This was just more theological quibbling like so much of what goes on in the the Christian blogosphere in our own day. That's all. I think it's a stretch, Steve, for you to stand there and say definitively that these men were haters of God. They had to have have cared for the name of God at least somewhat. They're they're trying to protect the integrity of God's name. They just disagreed with Paul. They were just coming at things from a different perspective. Perhaps they were seeing things through a different cultural lens. Steve, you're just being insensitive. 
Beloved, I want you to listen to the word of God this morning. Paul does not stop at showing that these men were indeed wrongheaded. But he goes on to make the case that these men were liars. Do you see that? Paul proves it. He proves their lies. Their overall goal is to move people away from trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul goes to the other apostles and they find they are all in absolute, complete harmony over the wonderful truth of the gospel. They only said that he should make sure that he was caring for and ministering to the poor. And Paul says, that's the very thing I desire to do. Do you know why? Paul points it out here for our purpose. For- For a purpose, beloved, he he mentions it. Do you know why the men who agreed on the gospel were also in full agreement about what we should do as a direct result of the gospel? Because it's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what the gospel brings. Do you see it? Listen to me, beloved. We try in vain to make Christianity about everything but the gospel. But Christianity, authentic, biblical Christianity, produces not spiritual superstars, not individual Christianized personal odysseys where you can prove your, prove your worth and make your public sacrifice, but compassion. And mercy and kindness and gentleness and love. Is that what it produces in you? Because that's what Scripture says the effect of the gospel is. Beloved, I want you to ask yourself Does coming to worship coming here to worship the Lord each and every Lord's Day, produce love in your heart for the people of God or irritation? Look around this sanctuary. Do you find yourself disgusted that there are not more people here just like you? Listen to me. The gospel of Jesus Christ The true gospel, the right gospel, the only gospel produces compassion and love and mercy to the glory of God. And Paul will not give an inch on that truth. We have to ask the question, why? Why is it such a big deal that we not give an inch when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why is it that we cannot just all agree on something close or some compromise that we can make here for the sake of unity? Surely that would be more glorifying to God than disagreeing. Well, beloved, I ask you, what would we have to let go of? Where would it be okay to give up the ground of truth Truth itself for the sake of supposed unity. 
I would say, of course, nothing and nowhere. What unity can exist between those who accept the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and those that do not? Or do you still see it as a distinction between light and darkness? Or do you still not see it as a distinction between light and darkness? As those who are either for Christ or against him. You know, last week I mentioned that one of the reasons we need to be reminded of the gospel is because I've watched the so-called Christian televangelist. So have you. I've been to the, the Christian bookstores. You know, I, I recently looked at the current bestseller list for Christian books. It should break, it breaks my heart. Every single book on the top 20 bestseller list deals with either people and their relationships to one another or finding the right formula to follow so that God has no choice but to give you happiness. Not a single book about the message of Jesus Christ and his life, his death, and his resurrection. Not a single book about our inconceivable wickedness Apart from God's glorious grace, not a single book about our own desperate need to have a Savior who is righteous. Because we are not. Not one. Look for yourselves. You know, on television, we have men like Joel Osteen filling stadiums. 60,000 people. So that he can tell them everything they need to know about living out good strategies for success and fulfillment in life. About the power of positivism, self-help and his own version of morality. And precious little about all of their need for the atoning blood of Christ to justify them before a holy, perfect God who hates their sin. I remember hearing Robert Schuller dating myself a little bit. He's no longer in the limelight, but by the grace of God, thank God he's not. He's the pastor of the famous Crystal Cathedral, and I heard him say in an interview that he certainly hopes that there is not still someone out there telling people that they are wicked and sinful because it will turn them away and it will damage them as people. Thousands, if not millions of people watch and listen to the glorious music in this glorious church and they do nothing about the message or the lack of message being given there each and every Lord's Day. To each his own, right? We just need to get along. Live and let live. Who am I to judge? Steve, you shouldn't be so quick to judge. What makes you so sure you're right? Beloved, it's because we are not following the teachings of men when we accept justification by faith alone. It is the central message of Scripture found in Genesis to Revelation. Do you understand? And it is the very spirit of Almighty God Himself 
that opens our eyes to the fact that we are sinners, that we are wicked, that we are born into this world as haters of God. It is revealed to us not by men, but by God through his word, through the eyes of the Holy Spirit that he graciously gives to us. God has revealed the truth to his people and it is in no way that man should rise up and grab the glory. We do not have to stumble through this life always wondering about the truth. God has given us the truth in his word. He even gives us eyes to see it through his spirit and the father is glorified when you and I run to the son. If the people that you are listening to teach anything other than this as justifying man before a holy God, then I, like Paul, say to you, let them be accursed. Those are his words. If you think you are somehow obligating God to forgive you all of your sins because of your so-called good life and the sacrifices that you've made, the life that you live, or because of all the good things you have done, Paul says, let you be accursed. It's not the gospel. If even an angel from heaven should come and teach any other gospel, Paul says, let him be accursed. Do you understand A different gospel is not just another gospel. It's not just another way of looking at things. And it's not the truth. It's a lie. And it did not ever originate with Almighty God. Do you see it? Do you see the importance of not only getting this message of our justification right, but not standing by idle when man tries to alter it, tries to make it less? Will you really seek to rob God of the glory in this life? Will you sit back and look the other way as people rise up trying to steal the glory of God and our wonderful salvation? What will it take to get us to the place of Paul and being willing to stand up and fight this fight? Or have we, like some of the Galatians, already placed our hope in something else? Are we, like so many in this culture, moving towards finding hope within ourselves? Or finding hope in in positive thinking or in understanding love languages. We in the church are far too accepting of false teaching. And we are far too inclined to look at anything else other than what truly matters. And it breaks my heart to think that we really do not struggle with fighting false teachers when they arise. Because it would seem that we are straining our necks looking the other way. And then calling it tolerance, or worse, calling it loving our neighbor. Passing lies off it as the gospel is certainly not loving your neighbor. We should thank God that he has raised up men like Paul to fight and stand for the truth. And we should look around and see what he's calling us to do. I sincerely doubt that God has called us to do nothing and simply wait for another Paul to supernaturally fall from heaven. The truth is, Paul fought as one who fully realized what a glorious salvation he himself had been given in the Lord Jesus Christ and about what it cost. And so I close this morning with another question for us to think about in the week to come. Beloved, are you and I really any different than him?
If the gospel is not amazing to you this morning, I beg you to look again at the holy law of God and find out how far you fall short of it. The thing that makes the gospel amazing is, number one, our desperate need for it. And number two, the grace that we can't wrap our minds around, that God would know us, that he would know us as we are, like we are, mean sometimes, right? Sinners. That he would love us enough to give up his glory with the Father, come down, walk among us, suffer for a lifetime, and die that you might have life. Don't make the gospel about anything less than that, beloved. Because it will never heal what truly ails you.